I have total conviction that this deal is going to happen sooner than, than people think. You have a very, very motivated seller in Disney. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, September 18th, which means it's Media Monday. Today on the pod, John Kelly and I examine the fire sale at Disney. The latest auction item, ABC Television, an old media asset that Bob Iger is apparently eager to dispense with. We'll dig in to the potential buyers. And we also take a look at the federal indictment of Hunter Biden and how the White House is responding or not responding to a scandal that the media and Republicans are obsessed with. We'll discuss all that and much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily. If it's Monday, it's Media Monday, and I'm joined by Puck Kingpin, John Kelly. <laughs> How you doing, John? I'm all right. How's it going, Peter? High noon, Hamby. <laughs> Good. I hope you can keep this inside joke running. There's actually some <laughs> high noons in our fridge right now because someone brought them over the other day because they have a severe gluten allergy, John. That's that's the market. <laughs> oh, that's the God. market. That's the lane. Right. Um, so before getting into today's topics. Disney and Hunter Biden. Last week, Puck held its two-year anniversary party at Puck World HQ in New York City. I couldn't make it. I was very sad about that. Give me a couple of headlines. Yeah, we, we, well, we were sad to miss you. Um, it was a great party. Our, our office, as um, some listeners know from firsthand experience, is a great party apartment. We're on 17th Street. The same <laughs> block is Twitter, interestingly. It's around the corner from where Barney's used to be for all those years. And it's a it's a mixed use uh, commercial residential building. So we, we actually, you know, Puck is operated out of a fabulous Chelsea loft. And um, I'm there now. The balloons are still on the ceiling. There's a, um, a, a two balloon that still has helium in it. I think there's still some leftovers. We got like um, finger food to in fitting with the second birthday party that's still in the fridge. Although I'm looking at Dylan. I think he's, he's probably going to clean it out before he gets back on a plane. And it was great. You know, it's funny. Um, it, it was a a crowd filled with well-wishers, a lot of media people, some political people. Carolyn Maloney was there, um, uh, which made me smile. Uh -huh. And I was actually pleasantly surprised by just, you know, the number of people who came up to me and said, hey, I, I didn't know this was going to work out. Um, I gave you guys 12 months and um, I laughed at that. You know, these were even, including even some friends of mine. And I thought, you know, it's funny about us here is that we were all, I think, very quietly confident that this was going to work all yeah. along. And we're, and we're not we're not brow beaters. We're not chest thumpers. Uh, we're a lot of sort of mid-career people who uh, like we do and, and do it pretty well and wanted to go about trying to have a positive impact on our industry without a lot of pomp and circumstance. And so I wasn't surprised. We didn't want to overdo it with a party. Uh, we don't want to over-celebrate ourselves here at Puck. We'll let other people do that. And um, it, it was sweet. It was an absolutely lovely evening. Yeah, sometimes I, I think about the era when you were starting this whole venture up and, you know, I was talking to people about it, including other reporters. <laughs> they didn't get it. I'll be cocky. That's on them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, John, I want to ask you about Bob Iger's Disney fire sale, which feels like, you know, he he went to Sun Valley and said he was open to selling all of these different assets. He brought on some former deputies to sort of figure out which ones they could sell. I guess when I first started 
reading and hearing about this from from Matt and Dylan especially, I was like, okay, this will take a couple of years. Like, Iger's got to sort through <laughs> what what's for sale, yeah. what's not, what's valuable, what's not, where the future is. Uh, it's it's happening in real time. Like, I, this is this is going on. And the latest big headline that dropped last week was that. Byron Allen, the media entrepreneur, is putting mm-hmm. in a ten billion dollar bid for ABC and Nat Geo, the the sort of TV assets that Disney doesn't really see as valuable anymore. Nextstar, the TV group, is also sniffing around ABC as well. What's your take on the state of play with Bob Iger and and Disney right now? This obviously comes on the the heels of the the battle with Charter Spectrum, um, which called to mind the future of streaming and what they're going to do with those assets. But yeah, curious what like what you think, Bob Iger, like what's in his head right now? Well, you know, for a better part of a decade, there was a theory in uh, the upper echelons of media that these legacy companies had to build build and consolidate in order to not only garner market share, but also to position themselves to be sort of uh, appetizing to the uh, to the fang audience or, or to the the acquirers what we're seeing is that of course the reality is the precise opposite and Iger is actively moving forward on the plan that I think sherry Redstone has been really resistant to which is a, it's a, a strip down you know mm-hmm. Disney was was built into this conglomerate that had live and parks and and all these studios and and a controlling interest in Hulu and and all these linear assets and that's not what it's going to be. And if there's actually an eventual sale of Disney, and I'm not sure I totally buy that, it'll be a smaller company. So not surprising that Iger went on CNBC in, you know, at Sun Valley, I guess in July now, to hang a shingle on some of these assets. And the only reasonable explanation for why he did it publicly is because he needed to cast about as wide a net as humanly possible for ABC. And, you know, Within media circles, I'm sure some people that thought to themselves or, or wondered, particularly at those companies, oh, will it will a buyer be a sort of seductive company, a, a, a Netflix or an Apple? Uh, no, like you know, the buyers are who you think they're going to be. It's Byron Allen who who was a, a losing bidder for BET. It's Nextstar, which runs a consortium of of local entertainment channels. I'm sure that um, there are more inbound calls from PE than Disney's letting on, although they're, I bet they're starting as low ball offers, but they're putting their interest out there. That's usually mm-hmm. how those conversations tend to start. And, you know, there was a report last week about anxiety inside ABC. And of course it's true. You know what's next for ABC. This is going to be a financial play. The people coming after ABC are not strategics. They are players who want to take a historic asset and presumably make it more profitable and to grow their existing businesses. So so it, it's it, it's a private equity fantasy. You could see how it would fit into Nexstar, which is is local. Uh, I don't totally understand the Allen strategy. I guess that would be a, somewhat of a strategic since he, he, he'd probably own and operate and he seems like he believes in the power of these, of these legacy brands. These are not fantastic outcomes for the asset, but Disney needs the cash. And Iger as you know, Bill noted this last week, it's not totally clear what he's doing yet. Maybe the first six months of his, but what I guess it's now 10 months into his, his second term, I think was spent coming to terms with the reality here. And mm-hmm. now I think we're entering a new phase, which is the sort of just get this shit done phase where he wants to transact quickly. And I presume that that story ended up in Bloomberg because one of the interested parties uh, wanted it out there. And I I think that Disney probably wants to wait for the market to get a little larger 
before it makes a decision on ABC, but I have total conviction that this deal is going to happen sooner than than people think. You have a very, very motivated seller in Disney. And if the charter negotiation is any indication, I know you, you chatted about this last week with, with Bill and Dylan, Disney's giving up on its third tier cable assets. It's not trying to restore them. Maybe it'll throw a bundle of them in whatever you know the ABC deal is, but Disney is is incredibly motivated to uh, to get these operating costs off the balance sheet. Mm-hmm. I actually went back and looked to see how much Michael Eisner paid for ABC, which was then Capital Cities ABC back in 1995, and it was something like. 15 billion or 19 billion. That's a pretty big delta of counting. If you're thinking about 90s numbers, it's somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found this New York Times piece about it. Apparently, Eisner gave an interview to ESPN at the time, you know, bragging about his ABC acquisition, no regrets, saying it was, quote, one of the best acquisitions maybe of that whole century. Uh, but then you go down a little bit in this interview, and Eisner says, quote, we spent 19 billion. Because we wanted ESPN. Uh, so, yeah, in hindsight, very interesting. Like the Disney wanted ESPN. That's a bet that paid off for many years. I mean, we'll see what the future of ESPN is in terms of rights and streaming and all that. But it's just funny that in the context of today's conversation going back, you're like, oh, Eisner didn't really care that much about ABC itself. <laughs> he wanted ESPN. And that's basically what's playing out right now. And the underappreciated part of that deal, too, is that what he also got was his successor, Bob Iger, who came over in that deal. People don't necessarily Mm. remember the deal that way, but a a good historical corollary is when Bill Harrison was the CEO of of, uh, J.P. Morgan, and um, they bought Bank One, which, uh, you know, was led by this whippersnapper named Jamie Dimon in like 2004-ish and the best deal that that Harrison ever made. And the rest is history. Dimon, like Iger, is having a hard time figuring out, you know, how to control or manage succession now. Uh, But it does make you wonder if at some point Iger uh, ends up, this is not plan A, I'm sure, but ends up pulling the trigger on Candle Media just because he surveyed the landscape and the only person who can handle new Disney is Kevin Mayer. History repeats Mm. itself in in funny ways. It's funny also going back and reading about these deals. I know I mentioned 30 Rock all the time in this podcast and Katie and I rewatch it like every year, but (laughs) there's a joke in there that Obviously, NBC is owned by GE, which was real. But then <laughs> Jack Donaghy always talks about how GE is owned by the Scheinhart Wig Company. And like <laughs> you go back, <laughs> you go back deep in like these media deals. It's like Capital Cities was started by Hyman Rosenblum, an Albany businessman who like had a radio station. And then that blah, blah, blah. Like decades later, we're talking about like Disney, ABC and the Candle Media and all these different entities. So if. If Iger and Disney want to basically create an auction here and leak news about this bid or that bid, like who else do you think might be a suitable buyer? I really think this is a private equity fantasy come to life. Um, I think you're seeing the consortium of buyers uh, arise. You know, there are a number of companies. Tegna, I think, is another one that that, um, Mm. has a lot of interest. Uh, There's some maybe some regulatory issues potentially there. To me, Apollo has always seemed and I'm not like entering any sort of reporting here. I'm just giving a hypothetical. When you think about companies that have experience in distressed media assets and success uh, turning them around, uh, Apollo just comes to mind immediately. And if you look at the Yahoo deal, 
which, you know, Yahoo is a company left for dead. Yahoo came in combined with AOL. Um, it's like a $5 billion deal. And they brought in new management. They made the company massively more profitable. They focused on a realistic strategy um, that was ad-driven. Uh, you, you could see how there's a playbook for what we call value extraction and that they, they've perfected it and they're looking at a significant windfall there. I think Iger's actually not getting the credit he deserves for understanding the significance of the problems. The kind of cry for help on Squawk Box mm-hmm. that morning was a manifestation, to me at least, that he knew he had to find buyers coming out of the woodwork. Again, Iger came over, as we just said a moment ago, in the Cap Cities deal. He doesn't want to move ABC to a acquirer that's just going to tear it up. Again, he's socially friends, I, I presume, with a number of, of well-paid people there. And he doesn't he doesn't want to contemplate what's going to happen to the contracts of Robin Roberts or George Stephanopoulos or Michael Strahan or, or others. But he's also viciously practical. They'll, they'll wait a bit longer, but the usual suspects will not be there. It'll be a, a group of financially motivated buyers and they'll have to make a decision. No media acquisition can change the fact that David Muir is just very, very handsome. He will never <laughs> stop being handsome. Uh, John, I want to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk about the media coverage of Hunter Biden's federal indictment. Powers that be, everybody. It's Media Monday. Usually we talk about the business of things, but I want to mention the tone of the coverage around Hunter Biden, Joe Biden. Uh, Hunter Biden was indicted last week in a federal court in Delaware for making false statements and illegally buying a handgun while Mm -hmm. he was in his drug era. This comes after the plea deal that he struck with federal prosecutors in July over tax violations, also gun possession. That fell apart. And all of a sudden, you've got a bunch of things going on. There's all this like miasma of bad things that Hunter Biden did or supposedly did that are out there. And all of those things are now on the table, both in a real legal way, but also from a feeding frenzy political perspective, if you're a Republican, especially a Republican in the House or Donald Trump. But John, I want to I want to turn the political pundit tables here and ask you a question After the indictment last week, we're now facing the prospect of Hunter Biden facing a criminal trial during the 2024 election. Uh, Republicans get to wave around a headline saying Biden indicted, no matter what the details are. Biden crime family, Biden indicted. And one of the most interesting things about this story that's shifted to me in the last couple of weeks is that throughout this whole Hunter Biden, Joe Biden saga, while Joe's in the White House, Most Americans actually didn't think President Biden had any business dealings with Hunter, that he was involved in any way. That's obviously been the line from the White House. CNN came out with a poll a week or two ago showing a majority of Americans now think President Biden had something to do with Hunter Biden's business affairs. Forget about the top line poll numbers. What's changed the most in there is independence. Independent voters now think by a majority, according to the CNN poll, that President Biden had something to do with Hunter's business dealings. So let me, political analyst, turn the table on you. Why do you think opinions 
on this topic are shifting in the mind of the public. Tara had a good interview with Michael Rosa, who um, worked in the Biden administration a, a little bit for a couple of years uh, last week on her show. Someone's got to win. And I, I think that they nailed it. The Republicans have done an incredible job defining the, the Biden crime family. You know, if you brought an alien from Mars and said, take a look at these people from Delaware. Do you think that they're capable of, of organizing La Cosa Nostra? You'd say, no, I don't think so. I think this hunter guy is a, a, a bumbling idiot who has a drug problem and is a massively unhappy person. But the Republicans have been relentless. I mean, I, I'm sure like you, Peter, I laughed years ago when this you know drumbeat began on the far right about impeaching Biden and about the corruption Burisma and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, this guy is like, you know, going to be the 46th president in our history to have a sleazy family member, right? Like get in line. Um, this will never touch <laughs> Joe Biden, who's who is the squarest of all squares imaginable. But mm-hmm. this was the Republican Party exercising their incredibly muscular Benghazi muscles you know, and, and their well-honed ability to take a sort of largely bullshit circus story and mm-hmm. show that if you are disciplined about continuing to amplify it, it, it will catch on. And I'm not surprised by this recent polling, or I should say, I, I was, I was, I was um, emotionally surprised, but not intellectually surprised, because voters are just beginning to tune in now, and mm-hmm. they're they're tuning in at a moment when. A hunter is indicted. This happens simultaneously as the, the Biden age question is now becoming a, a mainstream uh, media narrative, uh, which, which is not a surprise. That this is the the work of the Republicans, the the, you know, the the kind of oppo machine, and it's it's very very powerful. And the person who could have been a blocker on some of this was Kevin McCarthy, who could have sort of taken an accurate read of the mood in the house or at least within his own caucus and said hey we don't have we don't have the votes here to, to, to move on impeachment there are a lot of you know there are about 18 or 20 republicans from biden districts uh, uh you know a half dozen of whom you know only won by a, a couple of points and and they're mm-hmm. not likely supportive of impeachment but mccarthy like a, a you know a person fearing for his life said okay never mind i didn't see that and he's Pushing forward. So the mental arithmetic is very simple for an independent voter. Hunter did something wrong. The House is galvanizing impeachment. Biden seems, you know, is increasingly old. And it's scary but effective how um, uh, the Republican infrastructure in a in a only loosely coordinated way created this miasma. It, um, really, this is the sort of, I think, and I'm, and I'm not a political person, but this is the... Um, I think what Hillary uh, uh, referred to all those years ago when she said the uh, the, the the vast uh, right wing conspiracy like there there are uh, there's a bazooka of um, conspiracy worship that has been opened up here. And it's very hard to put that back in the bottle. Yeah, I think there's a bunch of factors going on here. One is that Biden is just facing a very unprecedented information environment and he is an intentionally deliberate, boring actor in that environment. And so the Biden White House makes a boast about this, that, you know, we came in as a balm against the tumultuous mm-hmm. years of Trump. And, you know, all these pesky White House reporters who are desperate for scandal and, you know, leaks and gaffes, like, you know, we're not giving it to them. We are getting things done. That's their way of doing things. But I'm not necessarily saying he's doing it right or wrong. We don't know politically yet. I mean, that that will be proven out at the next election. But 
it's very hard to be starving the information beast when so many other people out there, journalists, but also like bad actors and, and Republicans and internet gremlins are willing to fill mm -hmm. the void without him. And so I think one of the most damaging things Republicans can do is like the, and the Republican National Committee does this every day. They just watch every Biden live stream and clip the parts where Biden rambles or where he walks the wrong way off the stage or where he like trips or just where he looks old and just throwing that out onto Twitter, putting it on the internet. And so you have this world where that's what people see because a, a coincidental thing happening at this very moment is what we in press ivory towers have come to call news avoidance. After the Trump years, so many millions of people are pulling back from the news. They're not intentionally sitting down, reading the stories, like they're just leaning out actually. And so in that ecosystem, the way people are getting information is push alerts, group chats, you know, bits and pieces, memes here and there, all of it's decontextualized. And so it's no surprise in that universe that the number one thing people bring up in focus groups about Biden is sleepy, old, senile, whatever. The Associated Press had a poll a couple weeks ago where they basically just asked survey respondents to name the first word that comes to mind. And this is a poll. This is not a focus group. This is like thousands of people. And people, Republicans, Democrats, independents said the same thing, old, sleepy, yeah. senile. And so I say all of that as a preamble. This Hunter Biden scandal slips right into that universe very easily. Like it's you just see indictment. You hear Republicans talking about Hunter and Biden crime family and corruption. And so it's no wonder that among independent voters, that number creeps up because the information environment, you can't control it. You can only hope to like bend it to your will by throwing chum in the water constantly, constantly, mm. constantly, which is what Jim Jordan and James Comer have been doing and House Republicans and Trump and DeSantis and all these people. And maybe, maybe it's having an effect. And the White House is just hamstrung because like this is an ongoing legal thing. They appointed Merrick Garland, who then appointed a special prosecutor because Biden rightly wants to show that like, the American justice system is unbiased and we have to let this process play out. So they're like sort of, they're in a straitjacket where they can't really respond to any of this Hunter Biden stuff. It just makes it very difficult to compete with Republicans who, especially in the House, don't really care about anything other than tarnishing Joe Biden before the next election. This is a, a little fourth wall breaking and maybe um, a bit weedsier and more insider than even our crowd wants, but there is a distinct difference between the first two years of the Biden administration and, and this latest episode, when it comes to the management of the president and the message, I, I think that and I'm not like trying to get over my skis here, but the Biden White House was caustic and pugnacious. They absolutely protected the image of Biden as this avuncular guy who was the balm, as you put it. But they would fight like hell to make sure that they could control the message. And um, it's actually um, it's indicative of, you know, the, the Obama White House was was the same. I mean, I think you, you saw it from the other side. They were they presented this genteel image on the outside, but they were they were warriors when it came to um, image making and, and media maintenance. And, and so uh, not surprisingly, a lot of descendants of that coaching tree, so to speak, were our Biden world. And they were just profoundly protective and definitional. They, they were able to, to, mm -hmm. to protect their principle. I've been surprised at how hands-off 
the Biden administration has been. And I, I get that that Joe Biden is trying to to look like a, a above it all American president who doesn't want to be dragged into the scandal. That's what he's supposed to do. But the infrastructure that he's created around him, I think, is not sufficiently fought back on this. And there's also I think this is the the, the, the key heart of heart here, which is that. I think there's some division inside of um, the broader Biden world about how to handle this. Um, the White House wants to deal with Hunter like a hole in the head, and yet Biden um, is profoundly loyal throughout all of this. I mean, I think you know, Hunter was with him on at least one fundraising trip that I was uh, aware of um, around the holidays. And I could, I'd love to read the internal monologue of Jill Biden, who I'm sure um, has some thoughts that she keeps to herself about this. But that internal division, I think, has created uh, what appears like a complacent attitude towards um, this scandal because it nothing scandals can turn into real scandals uh, quickly. That, that, that was the that was the lesson of Benghazi. That was the lesson of Whitewater, obviously. And um, you unfortunately, you you have to fight back in, in these regards. And um, I've been surprised by how complacent the Democrats have seemed. I should say this before we go. Uh, I pointed this out to someone else recently. Uh, Barack Obama's approval rating in September before his reelection, which is where we are with Biden now, was basically at 40%. And he went on to win reelection. Biden's at 40% right now because he was able to make the, the campaign a choice and mm -hmm. not a referendum. And that's that's and they defined Biden... Mitt Romney so early on, so early yep. on uh, that the 46 percent thing and the binders full of women all played in their favor. And Obama also, to, to be to, you know, to be fair, was managing through the worst economy in many yep. lifetimes, the bailout of the auto industry. Every decision was painfully unpopular. I mean, do you remember what those unemployment figures used to look like? I mean, our, yeah, it was the, the, our, our lives were set around the jobs number, um, you know, every every Friday. And I'm, when unemployment dipped below 10 percent, that was like an absolutely massive moment. <laughs> um, it was, I mean, it, it's, right. it's only only us older millennials who remember this stuff, Biden had to deal with inflation, but nothing is significantly consequential as what Obama had to tread through. Yeah, no, he had, Obama had to machete through so much stuff to get to the point where he could beat a Republican challenger in 2012. And he did, be, partly because they were so ruthless in defining Mitt Romney, um, you know, who's, who is retiring from the Senate now. Trump is basically well-defined at this point. <laughs> no one, yeah. like people didn't have opinions about Mitt Romney and they had to build that opinion echo chamber around him. Trump doesn't have that. And so Biden, but Biden still, his opportunity is making it a choice between the safe, boring guy who might be old and the crazy guy. And like, that's, that's their best bet. John, thank you so much for playing Political Pundit. I will see you <laughs> next Monday, buddy. All right, talk to you then, Peter. See you in the Slack. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. <laughs>